We're back! We're back! It's distraction! I'm through! That's Roth! How you doing, Roth? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm How's good. the state of the union for you? Is it strong? Are you the feeling... State, the state of my union is robust. Very oh, yeah. Robust. I've heard as much. Also, the sun is outside. Like, I live in an area where, like, March is not quite a lie. Like, where you live in New York, March is bullshit. It's just mm-hmm. extra February, and it sucks. Yep. Here, like, you get a little... You get a little springish action going on. Like, you'd almost put out the deck furniture, but not quite. And that's We've been getting great. some fun, uh, the, the death throes of the planet. Uh, you know, obviously kind of a grim uh, subject, but they've been throwing us one 65-degree day every week for the last month, which is really yeah, great. It is. It's nice. It's nice. Yeah. I can't complain about it. Like, but then it's it's always twenty five on Saturday, uh, which is cool. It's nice. Yeah, like like in ten years, the DC area will be ninety degrees every day, and there will be insects the size of like fucking frisbees flying around <laughs> and shit like that. But for now, I can take the sort of uh, the ramp up to global warming. I I don't mind that at all. That's good. Well, we've talked about the weather. Yeah, we talked about the weather, and we we haven't even begun to pierce the bleakness of this week's podcast because. Our guest is the great Jason Zengerly of the New York Times Magazine. Because we're going to talk politics with Jason. It's not because Jason himself is bleak. Although, Jason, I don't know. Maybe you are a bleak fellow. But I don't think you are. We have to talk about about matters such as the State of the Union. How are you, Jason? I am good. I'm good. I'm strong. I'm strong. My state is strong. I'm good. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Welcome to the Strong Boys podcast. I have to say that you might have the... uh, the, the most sort of uh, authentic bookshelf behind you out of all of our guests who have come on on Zoom. It's very ni- it's very nice. It's not like it it's doesn't look screen. like you it doesn't look like you put that you arrange that bookshelf specifically for a Zoom call. So like fucking that Room Raider bitch account would like give you a nine or anything Ooh. like that. It's just a regular ass bookshelf with like lots of books you might use on it. So that's cool. yes, yes. Yeah, the, the Room Raider the, is that is that is the worst thing about the pandemic. I think the fact that 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 account exists and is still going strong. That, yeah, that is is that not the same person as like True Facts stated? So I just learned last week there, the, was artic- there was an article in the Washington Post about like resistance figures and sort of what they're doing now. And that guy was like a leading resistance tweeter, you know, with all these crazy conspiracy theories about the Marshall, the Supreme Court and, you know, oh, the Russian. Yeah. 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 I had no, he oh, was in a Scooby-Doo van outside the Russian embassy, which I did not oh, know about. Oh yeah, my he was, fucking God. He was a guy that would like pay for billboards that would have like Trump, like wearing like a little propeller beanie and like holding a big lolly. And he'd be like, Trump saw this. Yeah. By the way, and he hated it. Like, but it's cool that they that you're able to pivot if you're that type of dude uh, from away from uh, taking no joy in reporting that the marshal of the Supreme Court will soon be remanding Steve Bannon into custody. That like when when that's over with, you can just fuck off to being like, yeah, your Zoom calls a mess, dude. Like your lighting it, oh, sucks. Oh, it's perfect. The yeah. grift never ends. Um, <laughs> no, it's really <laughs> it's pretty great stuff. I, I to that end, I admire because Roth, you dropped a tweet from Seth Abramson in the Slack last week, and I admired that Seth is still on his bullshit. Oh, he had yeah. a deleted tweet after the invasion of Ukraine that said, and he's deleted it, but I have to read it. It says, Putin is shelling Kiev. I'm an author, not a soldier, so I can only urge folks to borrow <laughs> the book, his book, from below, from a friend or li- or a friend library, or purchase it if you have the means to do so. This book was my effort to warn America about the sort of thing we're seeing on TV now. And he has the fucking Amazon link to his own goddamn King. book. Incredible. <laughs> Always be closing, you know? Yeah. I, yeah. I, I have to admire it. Uh, Jason, you've covered politics not only for 
New York Times. You've also done it for Politico, The New Republic. Uh, we worked together at GQ for a spell. Um, so I think Roth and I want to start with the general question, which is, how are you? Are you doing okay? You're tired. <laughs> a little tired. I mean, it's funny. The, the Biden years have been... Um, you know, it's it's it. There's a, a bit of a return to normalcy. It's um, it's been a little hard to cover Biden and cover politics just because the Trump years were so crazy. And I think that there was, uh, in some ways, Trump was easier to cover um, just because there course. was. Yeah, I mean, there was just so much ridiculous stuff going on. The the leaking was crazy. I mean, Biden. I mean, there, there's obviously been a ton of stuff and the news has not stopped, but it's, it's a bit more of a normal administration and there, the stories are a little bit more boring sometimes. And I think that, you know, occasionally it's, it's just, it's the, the news is just as, you know, momentous and just as important, but, you know, producing the kind of stories that you were producing during the Trump years, or it's, it's not those kind of crazy, holy shit stories are not as, not as, uh, it's easy to turn out. So that's been, that's been interesting. Um, it's kind of a challenge, you know, and there's like unified Democrat control in Washington. And yet I think people is are there? still, I mean, there is, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but I think people are still kind of obsessed about what's going on in the Republican party. And, you know, I mean, obviously like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and all those people, they're not, they're not insignificant figures. I mean, they're not, they're not marginal figures, right? Like they, they speak for, I think a good number of Republicans, but, there are there are interesting stories going on in the Democratic Party as well, and I think sometimes it's they, they don't seem as quite as sexy maybe as, as the stuff that's going on in the Republican Party. I mean, sexy could is maybe you, the wrong word. But yeah. could you tell us some of those stories? Well, I mean, I think that you know the the the, the, the I don't know it's, it's a schism is probably too strong of a word for it, but the just the direction the Democratic Party is going in and the fight between you know progressives and centrists or sort of more pragmatic Democrats has been, you know, very, it's, it's really significant. And the, I mean, just the way, I mean, the just contrasting Biden's speech from 10 months ago with the speech he gave last month, I mean, last night, when you really see how much the pendulum has swung towards the, the more centrist Democrats in that time, just in terms of the way Biden's talking. I mean, it was, a you know, I think that, I think Democrats are, have freaked out a little bit in terms of what's going to happen, what they think is going to happen in 2022, and then what they think might happen in 2024. And they they worry that they've gotten a little bit too far out over their skis, and they need to bring it back to the center. And, you know, that that recalibration, that, that recalculation is, is, I think, a pretty important story and a big story that, you know, is going to play out over the next couple of years. I have to say, I, 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 oh, sorry, go ahead, Roth. I'm just going to say that I imagine, and I don't want to draw this back into, you know, sort of the things that Drew and I mostly write about, but that Thinking about like the baseball lockout and stuff, I've had a very difficult time coming up with an angle on it because it seems like there's not only is there one thing to say about it, like it's been said, it's been happening for five years since the last CBA that like this is it's all been sort of leading to this. We've already written it. What you were describing with the Democrats at this point, like the idea of like Biden getting up there at the State of the Union and talking about funding the police and all of this sort of like just sort of like. The policies themselves, or at least the, the sort of the jargon changes, but this seems like a very familiar thing. If you've covered Democrats for, you know, more than an election cycle or two, 
Yeah. Like they get installed because voters get disgusted with what Republicans do. And then as soon as Democrats get there, they start advocating Republican policies, uh, but in different, softer language. And or at least like trying to make like obfuscate this difference between them and this party that is out of power and like just turning everybody off. And even if you knew that was going to happen, it seems like there's a challenge there in sort of telling that story in a way that not only is new, but that like can contextualize it without making people feel uh, despair and ennui and all of the other things that you (laughs) don't want to bring out in the people reading the shit that you write. Uh huh. Yeah. No. There. There's some of that, and I mean, I think that, you know, I think it's different for each Democratic president. I mean, I think, in a lot of ways, sort of what Biden's experiencing now is probably most similar to what you know Bill Clinton experienced. Um, I think the Obama administration was a little bit different. Um, I think they didn't, they didn't have quite the same kind of whiplash going on that you see with with Biden and that you saw with Clinton. But yeah, there's there's a little bit of a Groundhog Day quality to it. I yeah, yeah. I agree. <laughs> And I guess there wasn't really like a countervailing force for Obama. The, like the party was so much further to the right. Like he, as a, like there weren't squad type people in office to push back on. You know, like that wasn't like a lever that you could really pull in 2008. Yeah. Well, I mean, the party has just moved so far to the left since Obama. And, you know, it's, I mean, just the party is a very different place. And it's, I mean, it's sort of interesting, like with these, you know, centrist versus squad debates i mean they're really not that far apart ideologically on some stuff i mean the centrists have moved pretty far left i mean and some of it has to do with just you know how you say things and kind of you know performative things as opposed to actual policy and some of the really big ideological disputes have been you know solved i mean uh, you know I mean, Joe Manchin is worried about deficit stuff but there aren't oh a piece of shit (laughs) fuck him we love him you know what I want to say to you to me? I want Biden to walk out there, and I want to I want him to kick Manchin in the side of the leg so his fucking knee blew out. That is what would have been a good stay of the union. Piece of shit. This is this marks the fortieth year in a row that Drew is disappointed that there wasn't enough Steven Seagal shit yeah. in the state of the union. <laughs> well, my concern, Jason, and I understand I understand your points, and I think they're they're good points, and that you know, sort of as uh, as a whole, the Democrats have been pulled farther to the left than they have been in the past. And yet, I still feel as if they are being not only stonewalled by Manchin and his ilk, but also by a media when, you know, when the Washington Post, I read, I read an article that was basically an analysis that said, oh, Democrats are freaking out because they realize that they've, they've gotten too nice and voters don't like them saying defund the police and and teaching critical race theory in schools. And they're, they're going to have to walk that back. And it feels like the cart is leading the horse. And that's the part that really pisses me off. Am I, am I going too far? Am I too much of a Bernie bro when I think that way? I mean, I think you have to look at, at the Virginia election results. And, you know, you can... You can say it's the media doing this, but I don't think that was the media that created Youngkin's victory. I think that was a pretty significant event. And I think that, I think, you know, and I think you look at sort of the focus groups that were conducted after that and the the critical race theory stuff. Look, you can, you can, I mean, the problem for Democrats has been Republicans say critical race theory. And obviously there is, there is a dog whistle quality to that. Right. And they talk yes. about the schools, but you know, the Democratic response saying or liberals response saying, well, they're not even teaching critical race theory in schools. Like, I think that's that's not the right response for Democrats. I think they're at the at the base of that whole critical race theory discussion and debate and whatnot. You know, I think there is 
a feeling among white suburban parents that the schools have gone too far in one direction and that it needs to be corrected a little bit or they need to have more input. And that's like a very real thing. And Democrats, I think, kind of whistled past that graveyard a little bit and ignored it. And then, you know, it bit them in the ass in, in Virginia. And it, it's a it was, a it was a complicated thing in Virginia because you had you know, you had kind of this conservative media apparatus that would take that that critical race theory thing and they would gin it up and that would get the really sort of right wing voters fired up to actually go vote for Glenn Youngkin. But then you had Glenn Youngkin himself who would go to these, you know, suburban areas, people, you know, people who voted for Biden in 2020 and sound kind of reasonable saying, you know, we want to, you know, I, we're going to teach slavery in high school and we're going to, you know, we need to talk about America's sins, but we also need to talk about America's, you know, good things. And he himself sounded reasonable to these voters who never would have voted for Trump, voted for Biden. They're like, okay, this guy sounds reasonable. But then the people who did vote for Trump were fired up by what they were seeing on Fox and what they were, you know, seeing on Newsmax and hearing on the war room or whatever else. And it's sort of this, it's this, you know, this, these candidates can seem reasonable themselves, but they have this media apparatus behind them that they can get the more base voters fired up. And that that's a powerful thing for Republicans. And I don't know if Democrats have quite figured out how to how to respond to that yet. I think they I, I think they really haven't. And I think that that's th what Democrats seem to expect from the media in some ways is that they and this isn't the way that mainstream media works, whatever bias it does or doesn't have. I always sense that, especially with a lot of the this critical race theory stuff, like it's it's bullshit. Like the way that like Christopher Rufo and them are using it, the way that it's like at that sort of like activist level, it's not based in anything. It's based in, in getting people mad and making them vote. But it's on you as a politician to explain that. Like it's not the job of the New York Times to do that. Like the New York Times should tell the story as it is told, but they don't work for you. And I feel like there's this sense where Democrats expect like the non-right wing media to do a job that they themselves have maybe forgotten how to do in terms of explaining that. Not just by saying, we're not really teaching that, don't worry, we're normal too, but by sort of pushing back, promising something else, like being a little bit more of an active uh, agent as opposed to just sort of being acted upon by these various right-wing people and then either like complaining to the refs or just walking it off. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think I mean, I just think like in general, Democratic flacks are oftentimes like they're they're sometimes harder to deal with as a reporter because they almost expect you to kind of do the work for them. <laughs> it's like that's yeah. not really my job. Right. Um, I mean, do you uh, do you have a specific memory of that happening? Um, no, probably not one that I can share <laughs> since they're all usually <laughs> off the record conversations. No, but I mean, uh, what Roth is saying is correct. To me, it's a failure of, of leadership when it's, okay, oh, the voters are scared off by us teaching, you know, the proper history of the United States. So let's let's ease up on that because, you know, we got to do what the voters, you know, want. Otherwise, we're going to lose in 2024 rather than being assertive and leading and saying, this is why we're teaching this. This is why you need to fucking listen to us and having people go, oh, all right. Like to me, that is the most important thing that a Democrat can do. And they never do it ever. That's what I think. Hmm. I mean, I don't, well, yeah, I, I mean, what, what what's this, what, what's the speech you want to hear? Like, what do you want to hear a Democrat say? Well, I have to go write it first, Jason. I don't have it, I don't have it on me. I don't have my well, what's talk. weird about it. So I was, Drew sent me the state of the union, which I, 
I didn't watch. I did the thing. It's the same way I watch college football now. I was like, if anything fun happened, I'll see like highlights. You know, like if there was like, <laughs> like if a nose tackle scores a touchdown, like Spencer's gonna do a tweet about it, and I'll just see that, and that'll make it easier. But I read it, and you know, to read the speech, maybe this is it makes me a soft touch or whatever. Like I thought it was pretty good. Like yeah, I thought it was a good speech it, too. But it's like that's the part of it where like the what follows on from that is just knowing that like you know all these these worthy ideas and these billions of dollars that we're going to commit to this or that cause that you know sort of would seemingly unobjectionably make lives better across the country like it's just not happening that's the part of it it's that that sort of there's no non-pretentious word here whatever there's a gap between the politics as it is discussed and even the policies as they're proposed and then what actually happens and that's i think where i'm consistently not just like falling into that space, but getting bummed on the, the whole broader enterprise. It's not like we ran out of good ideas. It's just that there's not really this energy to put them into action or the capacity to do it. You know, like democratic control only means so much when it's Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema being able to like say when they don't want something to happen. Yeah. Although, I mean, it's not just Manchin and Cinema, right? I mean, I think that yeah, right. You I mean, know, they take cinema, a lot of heat like, for people that also don't for, Yeah, there was, I mean, and that I think is part of what's happening is that, you know, Biden got in there and he has these razor thin, I mean, he doesn't even have a majority of it in the Senate and a really small majority in the House. And he had this very ambitious agenda. And I think there was a thought on the White House's part that, you know, everybody was just going to fall in line. Like, we know no one is where we are right now, but we're going to bring them along. And, you know, if we just if we just say it enough, people will eventually come around. And, you know, they didn't and they didn't really prepare for that. And they weren't they weren't ready for it. And that's you know, and that's why they find themselves in this space now. I mean, they do. You know, they do have worthy ideas and and I think they have the energy to accomplish them, but they don't have the numbers to do it. And that's that's the problem. Can you say um, or do you know why they couldn't have anticipated this? Because I feel like I feel like it's something that they should should have easily been able to anticipate was it was it hubris yeah i think it was hubris i mean i think it was hubris and i think you know i think biden is he he is he's always been a politician who sort of places himself he kind of goes where the party is going he's not going to necessarily leave the leave the party but he's going to go where it goes and i think you've seen over his career like he's been very you know good about kind of placing himself sort of in the mainstream of the Democratic Party and going where it is. And I think that after after 2020, I think, you know, he rightly interpreted the party had moved to the left um, and he kind of put himself there, but he didn't, he probably <laughs> put himself a little further left than where things were. And I think that, you know, the big, the big conversation that you have among a lot of Democrats today, or at least the one that I've heard a lot is, you know, how did Biden, you know, Biden won the nomination by, by staying in the center, right? By not sort of going as far left as every other candidate did in the primary. And, that, and that's how he won it. And then he gets into office and he seemed to lose some of those instincts. And, you know, the question is like, was it the people around him? Was it, you know, was it just, was it literally just sort of having to staff a federal government? You're going to get, you know, you're going to bring in people who aren't necessarily where the president is. Was he going too far to try to, you know, win over the left. I mean, it's, it's an interesting conversation that you, you hear Democrats talking about a lot, especially, you know, centrist Democrats, um, and, and why, why Biden wound up where he wound up. But I do think there was a sense in the white house that if they just kind of held out, 
recalcitrant Democrats would come along and, you know, Sinema and Manchin are the ones who get all the attention. But honestly, there were, I think, a good number of, of other senators, Democratic senators who weren't on board with some of that stuff with the Build Back Better stuff. Can you name them so that I can be annoyed? <laughs> so you can kick them when they come down yeah. the aisle. That's right. Who's going to kick some knees? But like <laughs> Mark Warner is one that comes to mind for me, right? That these are guys that aren't thought of as necessarily being more conservative, but that ooh, are ooh, like. Or that Chris Coons asshole. Him too. We love yeah. him. Whoa. Or, I mean, but you know, look, look at Raphael Warnock in Georgia. Look at, you know, Mark Kelly in Arizona. I mean, I don't, uh, you know, I don't think it's just sort of the. The, the poster boys for modern Democrats like Coons and Warner, I think you can look at some of these other guys and, and women and, and, and wonder what, what they were actually thinking. Could you, um, could you uh, expound more on, on Warnock? Because I, I really do not know what his record has been since being elected. Uh, well, I mean, Warnock, you know, he's up for re-election this year. In a really, it's going to be a really tough year for Democrats in a state that is... You know, it's I mean, obviously, Biden won it in 20, but for a Democrat to win there in 22 is going to be very, very difficult. And I think that he needs to strike a pretty moderate pose um, in order to have a chance in 22. And I think some of the um, some of the discussions around, you know, build back better and all were probably not totally helpful to him. He also got hung out there because he made a lot of promises to get elected in 2020 that were not delivered upon because the Senate couldn't pass a lot of these bills, right? I yeah. Mean, that's the other side of it, is that, like, as much as it is a matter of sort of positioning yourself and, and messaging this, it's like, if you say you're going to do something, and then for whatever reason you're unable to do it, then that's made you look like you're not telling the truth, even if it's just, you know, more of an incapacity thing than a cynicism thing. Yeah. I mean, and there's an alternative history, right, that if, like, if the Democrats don't win in Georgia in 20, if they don't win those Senate races does the things actually in a weird way look better for Biden? I mean, by not, you know, by having, if you had a Republican Senate, would Biden's struggles be more understandable? And then right. he'd get a little bit more able to say, right. Like they're not letting me do all the good things that I want to do. You got to give me these people in two thousand. Exactly. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's much easier to blame. I mean, it's much easier for Biden to blame Mitch McConnell than it is to blame Joe Manchin. Yeah. Um, um, to that end, you know, I, I feel like I personally tend to focus on what, Biden has failed to accomplish, particularly build back better. And with, I know, I know, I, I'm, I'm, I've become You're a down on Joe Biden. Uh, but, but his failure to, to pass build back better and, and the voting rights uh, comprehensive overhaul, which I, I felt was very, very important. But um, am I losing sight of the things that he has accomplished to, so far? Do you feel as if he has been a productive president in the short time that he's been in office? I think he's, yeah, I think he's done, I mean, about as best as you could hope for. I mean, I think, I mean, I think part of the problem is he's, he's made some curious choices. I mean, the voting rights strategy, to me, did not make sense. I mean, I don't, that thing was never going to pass. And going all, I mean, going all in on it the way he did when it was clear it wasn't going to pass was, was curious to me. I don't, I don't understand. I mean, I, I understand why they did it, but I thought it was, it was a strange, a strange strategy. I mean, you know, I guess I guess he felt, and I guess the White House felt like they had to show they were going to make the effort to keep the you know the quote unquote base happy. But it just it just sort of highlighted their failure. They never they never really did enough to make the passage of that seem at all plausible or realistic. And then they you know they waged this kind of furious, loud campaign at the end that was going nowhere. Um, and that that it sort of highlighted his failure. Um, I don't, I don't really, 
I don't understand the, the thinking on that one. And, and so I feel like in a lot of ways, you know, he, he has had some accomplishments, but he's made such a show of his failures that they kind of, yeah. they kind of overshadow the accomplishments and that, and that's just a, that's a, a messaging issue. Yeah. It's also, I think that there's broadly speaking, like it, you can do stuff like, you know, him citing as he should, you know, the number of jobs created and all of that. People thinking that the economy is like doing really badly when it is adding jobs at this record pace. Like some of that obviously is a messaging thing. And I think some of it is also just outside of politics. There's a great amount of just like anxiety and grief after the last two years that it's hard to, I mean, this is part of, I guess his appeal is that he's the guy that can, not even just empathize, but that can sort of like perform the beats emotionally of somebody who knows suffering and sadness and can help you feel better about it or whatever. And I just don't think that, I don't even think you can necessarily say that this is on him. Like people still feel really bad. It's been a really like shitty time, you know? And that's like, to a certain extent it's on him, to a certain extent it's on like, you know, governmental atrophy and, you know, just failure to deliver on basic stuff but it's also like there's this feeling to me that we're like almost past a certain like idea of what a president can do at this point and it's a hard position to be in if you are the president like if you're just sort of like waking up to this like broader sense of things not working like yeah you're gonna get blamed for it but it's not like joe biden invented the idea of like governmental dysfunction like it's all just been kind of drifting it feels like in this direction for a while yeah i mean i think the the the, the promise of biden i mean was like you're gonna actually get someone who's competent in there right. you know after the trump years you're finally it's you know if it's not gonna be returned to normalcy per se like at least you're gonna have people who like know the basic like building blocks of how to run a federal government and i right. think and you we'll fill I, jobs. Like, there were no yeah. jobs in the Trump administration. Yeah. Never hired it was just all, like, guys that played college lacrosse that, like, were recommended to Don Jr. And somehow <laughs> that guy's, like, in charge of the Department of Energy after 18 months. <laughs> but I, I think, you know, I, I mean, I look back at, like, where things started to go wrong for the Biden administration. And I really think you can't, you can't overstate the Afghanistan situation because I really feel like that's where things started to run off the rails. And it really dented his his and the administration's image of competence and i think from that you know future fuck-ups then were kind of hung on their heads right and were magnified whether it was you know the the covid testing or whatever else it's like god these are the people who are supposed to you know be preventing this stuff from happening and, and obviously these are complicated you know complicated issues and complicated situations it takes a lot of planning but after afghanistan i think it kind of it dented their reputation for being competent and 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 it you know it it magnified kind of future screw ups and 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 they took the blame for them in a way that maybe they wouldn't have before. I think one of the things that that gets me and and I think this sort of it's part of the subtext of this conversation we're having now is that a lot of times I feel as if strategy takes priority over morality. So when we were talking about the you know you said that his push for the voting rights bill was sort of a strange strategy choice, but it was also at least in my mind the morally correct thing to do because voting rights seem to be under attack in ways that they've never been before. But I think that's probably an overstatement given America's history. Yeah. So my, I think my question to you would be, am I, am I, am I 
too demanding and too impatient in terms of how I am prioritizing what I think they ought to do. Um, and, and, or, or are they doing this sort of, are they viewing this in the correct sense? And do you have, do you have a good feeling of where they are going, what, of what they are going to accomplish at least prior to the 2022 election? I'd be very surprised if they accomplish anything else before the 2022 election. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, in 2024, 2024. Then. <laughs> well, I mean, if same answer. Yeah, I mean, if Republicans <laughs> right. take back. I assume Republicans will take back the House this um, this this fall, and I, I think it's a pretty you know it's even money they'll take back the Senate. Um, you know, they're going to Democrats will get a Supreme Court justice. I think that that'll be the last big accomplishment for for Democrats before. 2022 and quite possibly before 2024. I mean, will, will they get her confirmed? I mean, even I I think, I think so. I'd be, I'd be surprised. I mean, I don't, there's no real reason for, I mean, look, as long as, as long as they hold, you know, all 50 Senate Democrats together, they'll get her confirmed. And man, I mean, say what you will about Joe Manchin. He, he, um, he votes for, for democratic judges. I mean, he, he doesn't, he's pretty, he's pretty, um, compliant when it comes to judges that, that democratic presidents nominate. So I, I assume that he will be going along with her and, you know, I think cinema will too. And I think you'll even see like a couple of Republicans probably, probably vote to confirm her. It's not, it's not the existential fight for Republicans that it was when Scalia died because it doesn't change the balance of the court at all. It's just one liberal judge replacing another liberal justice, one liberal justice replacing another liberal justice. Um, she's just younger. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's take a quick one break. question, Drew, oh. that this is just for me, because I know we have to hit the break, but I am going to do it. Uh, Jason, you wrote what I think of as being like the definitive Don Jr. in hell stories right at the very end <laughs> of the... Uh, proud of that one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and I, I know this because I also tried to write uh, the definitive Don Jr. in hell story, and I'm, my editor, like, they were like lifting paragraphs that I'd quoted from yours, and they were like, everybody read this already, dude, just leave it. <laughs> My question for you is not about Don Jr. What is Mar-a-Lago like? I've never been. You didn't? So wait, with all the stuff in the like weird sick party rooms, like what is it like to be at a Don Jr. event at like I a rubber just, chicken sort of like, you know, like type of setting? I, you know, I, the only, so <laughs> the only Don Jr. event I went to for that story was, uh, event he did in charlotte north carolina for a congressional okay. candidate down there and it, i mean it was weird it was at this um this country club outside of charlotte it was like very much kind of an establishment republican uh gathering the candidate himself was kind of a a pretty conservative guy he was the guy who authored the bathroom bill in north carolina this guy dan bishop i don't remember oh, that terrific. we love his work he's yeah. he's been on the show a couple times <laughs> i figured <laughs> friend of the pod dan bishop um <laughs> but but the thing that was so funny about it was like this sort of you know it's kind of like a blue hair republican establishment of you know establishment republican event at this country club and like it was don jr and kim guilfoyle and um they have like kind of a sunny and share act and yeah. and you know and like like so all these kind yeah sort of like risque like kind of like blowjob jokes like they're telling like, <laughs> <laughs> And like, and the crowd is like eating it up, and it was just like, oh my god, the yeah. party's really changed. Um, that was that was my one uh, my one sort of Don Jr. Uh, rubber chicken event that I got to go to. I did not get to go to Mar-a-Lago last. The the banter in the story, and I reckon I'll link to it in the podcast, and like when I post it on the site, the banter is as excruciating as like you could imagine, because it is basically it's like horny Rat Pack, but like 
backwards tracked so that it sounds extra satanic and dark. Really grim stuff. <laughs> Let's take a break and come back with Jason Zengerle. Well, then we are back with Jason Zenger, the New York Times. Let's do a couple more politics things. We actually, we, we haven't stuck to sports enough. We've done too much of a dovetail into politics. But uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, two things. One was 2024. Uh, first of all, do you see anyone other than Trump running on the GOP ticket in 2024? Yes, yes. I mean, I think, well, I think it's not. I think it's not clear yet if Trump is going to run. I think he likely will. But if he doesn't, I think you're going to see like 30, 30 Republicans run. If he does run, I still think you'll see, you know, I think I think Chris Christie is going to run against him. Oh, yeah. Oh, hell yes. Um, wait for that. Woo, Chris Christie. I, I, could, I could see DeSantis running against him. I mean, I think that, you know, I think a lot will depend on how these Republican primaries shake out over the next few months and whether you know, Trump is, he's not looking quite as fearsome as he looked, um, you know, even like five or six months ago, you know, some of his, the candidates that he's endorsed have not really taken off. And I think that might, if they, if they don't perform well, if he doesn't have a really, you know, if his endorsement is not kind of, you know, automatic, uh, sort of winning primaries for people, I think you're going to see maybe some more Republicans get a little bit of courage and, uh, actually run against him. But I think, you know, I think the, the, the Mike Pompeo's of the world would probably not run against him, but I could definitely see a DeSantis and a Christie and, you know, I mean, Larry Hogan, your governor. Larry Hogan guy. You know, um, what, Larry, Ron DeSantis, by the way, younger than me. And that's, that's tough. That's tough pill to swallow. I don't really. <laughs> be I'm so happy too. that you think that, that Christie's ready to resume center stage. Cause I feel like that's, that's the Republican party getting back to basics is like a guy from New Jersey. Who's a Cowboys fan. That was the Republican party that I knew all growing up was just that type of dude. And then, you know, he gets supplanted by, by this weird fake Broadway gossip guy with a billion dollars. And you start thinking it's going to be like that forever. Uh, the other thing, pivot back. the other thing about 2024 is that should I be concerned, Jason, about, um, Republican attacks on voting infrastructure that have been effective in certain states, um, you know, sort of manifesting themselves in 2024 and becoming essentially permanent, you know, the, the more power that they gain. Well, some of those, you know, some of the, the attacks on voting infrastructure, they look like they're designed by Republicans to reduce turnout, right? Like that's kind of the goal. Which, yes. Which is really sort of counterproductive for Republicans right now, because actually Republicans are doing quite well in high turnout elections. I mean, you know, I think that liberal Democrats had this theory that if you boost turnout, it's going to benefit Democrats. And we have not seen that the last the last several elections. It's actually benefited Republicans or at least, you know, high turnout elections do not automatically produce wins for Democrats. So some of the stuff that Republicans are doing is probably, you know, quite potentially counterproductive for them. I mean, I think the more the more immediate concern for Democrats would be, you know, what Republicans are doing in terms of like allowing legislatures to overturn election results and send their own electors. I mean, the, the, the fiddling you can do with the electoral college, I think, is the kind of stuff that the Democrats should worry about. And that's, yeah. you know, and I think that's if you're going to critique sort of what Biden did on voting rights, I mean, this electoral count act, that's a, I think that's an important an important piece of legislation that, you know, Biden would would be smart to to get behind and endorse because you really do want to make sure there are no 
you know, loopholes that would allow Republican legislatures to kind of override the, the will of the voters and send their own alternate slate of electors and, you know, let the vice president decide the election. I mean, they need to, they need to swear that away and straighten that it out. seems like and, an easy enough thing to explain to people, too, just being like, it should matter if you actually win. Like, you should win if you actually win. Like, yeah. It doesn't seem like a thing that people would have a hard time getting their heads around. I mean, they, I, you know, it seems like there's some will on the part of Republicans in the Senate to take care of it. I mean, also cynically, just for Republicans, right? Like, if you know, yeah, if, they don't if, want if, to have to do this shit again. They don't want, like, well, they don't want Kamala Harris deciding it necessarily in 24. So, um, but you know, but Democrats were reluctant to go along with it. I mean, you know, Schumer and Biden. I mean, they they sort of thought it was a trap to you know kind of try to you know, undermine the, the, uh, the, the voting rights bill they were pushing. So we'll see. I mean, that, but that, I do think there's, that's something that could be done. Yeah. Uh, it's time to talk about sports and, uh, Jason, uh, you're a UNC fan. You live in Chapel Hill. It's March. How are you enjoying coach K's farewell tour? Has it been as enjoyable for you as it has been for Roth and myself? Oh God. I read cause I'm a horrible glutton for punishment. I, I read Wright Thompson's story this morning on uh oh. you know his like twelve thousand story oh god yeah oh, I mean, oh come long. on you knew he was gonna write a k story that's it's, true it's inevitable right oh wow Father, i see it here important um does it yeah. contain the phrase honeysuckle afternoons Ooh. i will Ooh. i will say this i was i i went into it with such like foreboding and dread and it was not as mawkish as i thought it was gonna be um yeah. Is a good writer when he's writing about a guy. When yeah, he's writing yeah. about an idea or a thing. Like his Jordan piece is like untouchable to me. It's yeah, no, no, I agree. Yeah. The thing, well, the thing that was good about it actually, and the thing that I was really worried about when I started to read it was like the the honeysuckle afternoon. So I thought it was going to all be about like K in the South, which yeah. it wasn't. It was about K in Chicago. It was about K in like the Polish community in Chicago, which was much more. And that, that really is Krzyzewski. I mean, he is not... Duke is not a Southern school. Shashevsky is not a Southerner. Like I was worried, like, I don't know if you remember last year, but I think they had right did the voiceover for the, before the Duke UNC game. Hell I was yeah, like, in did. the South basketball <laughs> match. I was like, no, it really, this is nothing. This is not the SEC. This is like, you know, it, this is different. And it didn't, it didn't have that. So, uh, so yeah, so the, the story was not as bad as I feared. It was, it was sort of interesting. Um, what was interesting is that that Wright did a piece on Emmett Till for the Atlantic. Yes, and it was fucking amazing. Yes, and it that was, was fantastic. It, and it was really good in part because Wright is the kind of writer where you know he it ain't gonna be a secret that he's from the South when he writes, right? But in the case of the Emmett Till story, he knew it, his knowledge of the terrain informed the story not in a self-serving way, but in in service of the story. And it was yes. really really brilliant done, and and. That's really good, as opposed to times when he will do like the sort of the Faulkner cosplay. Yes, and, the the professional Southerner crap gets really yes. old. But yeah. yeah, no, you're totally right. That Emmett Till story was one of the better things I've read in, in the last couple of years. And yeah, and he didn't and he didn't do that with Kay, which I was grateful for. Um, oh, well, thank you. <laughs> in general, I don't know. Saturday night's going to be is going to be a, a difficult evening. I have a feeling, both in terms of what happens on the basketball court and also just. Uh, just all the all the all the hoopla around K. It's um it's gonna be painful. Is it, well, Dickie, well, are you prepared emotionally for Jonathan Shire just stepping back into your life after a long absence and now you have to care about him again? Oh, I've always cared about Jonathan Shire. I mean, he's the heir apparent there, right? Like this is I mean, like he, yeah, basically... he's, yeah, he's, he's over I mean, Tommy Amaker, 
right? He'd be out time. Yeah, yeah. No, John Shire. I mean, the big question about you know, is John Shire good for the Jews or not? Like that's what that's yes. what I struggle with. <laughs> Never this has been like the subject of much Talmudic debate among my I have even I've given uh non Jewish friends the J pass to discuss this with me because I think it's so important. <laughs> no, I think that yeah, it's <laughs> no Shire Shire is a complicated figure for someone like me. I'm not not entirely sure where to where to where to go with him. I mean, I will say like I had a friend who was a huge Duke fan who um, had gone to Duke and I think she was there when Shire was there. And, you know, she had like a big crush on him, I think. And she, she loved him. And um, she was in that train accident. Remember that Amtrak accident a couple yes, of years ago? Yes. Oh shit. Yeah. And she was, she was, she was injured in it. I and mean, she was, she was pretty, you know, I mean, she survived. She's fine now, but she was kind of badly injured. And um, a friend of mine that works at Duke, I, I mentioned to him that, you know, about my friend and how much she loved Shire and Shire sent her this amazing care package with like all this Duke swag and, you know, autographs and everything. And so I, I, I have a soft spot for Shire. Like that was a pretty much oh, wow. thing to do. Yeah. I'm not ready to re-examine my, <laughs> well, just, again, this, the debate continues. I guess yeah, we'll this, just leave it at that. This shockingly became a pro Duke podcast. I don't quite know. Oh God. Oh no. <laughs> but I, you know, your last two, yeah, it's actually, it's more a question for like, uh, I don't know, Joe Lunardi or some shit like that. But your last two tournament champions are Baylor and Virginia, they, who like came out. I mean, Virginia was sort of always around and always winning games 50 to 48 every year, but never really doing much in the tournament. But I, I wonder, you know, with, with them and Baylor and then Coach K retiring, if maybe the landscape of college basketball has sh- will shift a bit or if it has already. Oh, yeah. It's it's funny. I I... You know, I think the the NIL stuff is good. I think the the portal, the transfer portal, is good. I mean, I think this is good stuff for the players. I do think it makes it different as a fan, and it's just, um, you know, and then you know, Shashevsky leaving, Roy Williams leaving. I mean, it's just it's tougher uh, to be as invested as I have been in the past. I and mean, I found myself this year. It took a lot of motivation to go. I, we have season tickets for UNC basketball. It took a lot of motivation some nights to go to those games. Yeah. I just didn't. I didn't feel it the way I did. And it's not just because the team. I mean, the team actually wasn't that bad this year. I think UNC fans are really spoiled and expect too much. But um, really, yeah, shocking. I know. <laughs> but um, you know, you're just seeing like you're just seeing players. You know, one of the great things about college basketball as a fan was like seeing these guys over the course of three or four years and watching them you know, sort of develop and grow. And again, like, I think it's, that's not necessarily, not necessarily a good thing for the players. I think what's happening now is good for the players, but as a fan, it's just tougher when you got, you know, guys only coming, not necessarily even as just one and done, just coming for one year is like a fifth year transfer. And you don't, you don't sort of build the attachments necessarily that you used to. And I think it just makes it a little bit, a little bit more difficult as a fan to be as invested as maybe you once were. Yeah, it makes it easier in some ways, and I say this as somebody that has, for whatever reason, decided to take the Rutgers pill. Uh, I didn't go there from New Jersey, but so that is like that is a fucking college basketball team. Like they cannot score. If you left them alone for two hours, they would score sixty six points. Like there's (laughs) there's only so many things that they can do. But it's it's guys that have played together for a long time. They always play harder than whoever they're playing against, and they can beat any team in the Big Ten because of how the Big Ten is. They could also lose to any team in the Big Ten by twelve points. Like I've seen it happen. But like it's cheering for a team like that is simpler in some ways than the idea of it being like two McDonald's guys, a fifth year transfer who like does a lot of like volume shooting type stuff. 
and then some other like you know lesser recruit types because that turns over every year yeah you know that's like two guys go to the nba you barely know them a, a couple other guys go play at like you know whatever a lower like a mid-major type thing so that i mean the continuity of it as if you're old enough to remember a version of college basketball that was not like that it still is kind of like jarring i'd imagine that unc is going to get back on its feet pretty fast just because it's such a a strong brand and everything but it is like yeah, having it must be strange to watch like a fifteen and thirteen team after all of these years of like. Hey, no, they're twenty one and eight, man. Fifteen and 13. oh wait, are they? They're good. Oh, oh he he. <laughs> they he just showed you. They just, well, no, the problem for UNC is basically any good team they played this year they lost by like twenty or thirty. Okay. Um, so those eight losses are are magnified. They they basically beat up on a bunch of mediocre teams. But the ACC is terrible this year. So the only good ACC team is is Duke. Um, and you know, of course, Duke beat us by thirty or whatever. Uh, That's not important. We don't need to talk about that. No, no, no. But uh, but no, it's it's just yeah. The whole the whole sort of just the, the just the feeling around college basketball is is so much is so much different than it was before. And again, I think good for the players that way, but not necessarily for uh, for fans. And it's been it's been tougher to to get into it. Are you gentlemen both saying that things were better in your day? Back in my day, Rutgers would have been the best team in college basketball because they had the tallest boys. They wanted it. <laughs> hey, Jason, we, uh, we remember a guy every week. Do you want to remember a guy? What about remember a guy? Do We're going to remember a guy. Yes, 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 yes. Because yes, yes. right, the guy of the week <laughs> to remember is Eric Montross. Do you remember Eric Montross, Jason? <laughs> I feel sure, like it's too easy. You want a harder one? I mean, yeah, Eric, you guys, Eric Montross is a, is a huge community presence in Chapel Hill. Just, so oh, is this, oh my God, you really don't, oh, I thought this was a setup. Like just this week. Just no, it's not. So he's the, he's the, the color man for the radio broadcasts. Oh, and okay. just this week, they endowed the center position for the UNC basketball team. There's now an endowed scholarship to pay oh for the God. scholarship for the centers. It is the Eric Montross scholarship. Oh, the, matter I, of fact. I know <laughs> about this trend where they, where you get your name on a fucking scholarship instead yes. of like on a yeah. library or like a toilet. Notre Dame loves to do this. Where yes. like endowed, you have to refer to it as Notre- like whatever the, the Jason O'Grady offensive coordinator position. Yes, <laughs> that's right. It's like the Thurston Howell III special teams coordinator. Yeah, so the, the, big, the big man at UNC is now the Eric Montross uh, big man. Um, wow. Yeah. Amazing. Oh, so, God, do I remember Eric Montross? Yes. So really, so really, Eric Montross gets to always be the center of UNC he from is, now yes. in, into eternity because of this endowment. Uh, yeah. Let's open Can up the... Oh, endow sorry. the Rashad McCants difficult, volatile guy position <laughs> on the roster? They need the Rashid Wallace endowed, endowed scholarship. Oh, yeah, good. she That'd be great. That'd be great. <laughs> uh, let's open up the fun bag. Uh, this is from Patrick. Jason, he writes in, it got me thinking after the Mad Max episode last week, how long would you have to live in a post-apocalyptic world before you felt comfortable throwing out your wallet and ID? Jason, <laughs> in, in a nuclear fallout, how long would you walk around carrying your, your wallet and your ID before you realized that you really didn't need either of those? Things? <laughs> I don't think I would, ever, I would ever be able to get rid of that. Right? <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, I am like, yeah, <laughs> I'm one of those people. I mean, I still have like the big, you know, black leather wallet with, you know, expired healthcare cards in it and whatever else and actual cash. Yeah. yeah I don't, I don't, I'm not one of the people who get rid of that. 
like a frequent customer car. I wouldn't. That would be maybe one of the last things. I'd be like, I'm two coffees away from a free coffee, <laughs> not a large. They won't give you a large, but they'll give you a medium. Uh, I have all I those with a big that. rubber band around them in my desk drawer, which I never actually take out and have when I go to the places. So, like, I never yeah. actually get to punch them out. I, you know, I have like multiple cards from the same place that I then have to combine, right? Because I always have to get a new card each time, and yeah, those, those do not go in the wallet. Our own Dave McKenna, that actually is his wallet, a rubber band, yes. which is a bunch of like, old subway cars. <laughs> that really, really? I love that question just because it's so easy to imagine, like, just shuffling, like, in, like, an Amorton Joe-style costume, but trying to, like, boop the chip on a, to get into an ATM kiosk or whatever is just, it's all I also, too vivid. I also think that, like, if we, if there was, like, a, a nuclear holocaust or something like that, like, one of the first things people would do is, like, ask for ID at, like, their, like, stronghold. They'd be like, yeah. look, we'll let you in. We'll let you into the bunker. But you gotta show us some ID. You can't. You, you, we're not just gonna let in some Canadian or something like that. You're like, oh, okay, all right. Take I have a, uh, I have a giant gift card in my wallet that's worth like two seventy five because I returned something, and they're like, you want it as money or a gift card? And I was like, well, look, I haven't gone shopping yet. I'm just gonna use it at the end of my, my grocery run today, and I forgot to use it, and now it's been sitting in my wallet for like eight months. So. Have you been? That's my new, incredible story. Have you been to the new um, like surveillance and uh, Whole Foods in in, in DC? No, have the one where you can just like take shit and feel like you're yeah, shoplifting and you just walk just right. Follow you the whole time. That that is terrifying. I'm sure the guy who'd be like, "Yeah, oh, that's it's dystopia all over again." And I would I would be the guy who walks into the Whole Foods and be like, "Oh my god, I can grab all this shit. This is fucking yeah. great." Like I'd totally be <laughs> like that. That's like it's a real fear. I don't think I'm that guy, but the idea that there's like secretly a Tesla dude inside of my brain that's just like waiting to be awakened and is like, "Yeah, fucking chip me. I don't want to have to <laughs> see somebody if I'm getting granola bars. Like, let's get it." <laughs> I don't want that person to be in there, but I don't know that he's not. Hey, uh, Brandon Nixon, Corinne Walls are our producers. <laughs> Daisy Rosario is our executive producer. Our theme song is by Kirk Hamilton. You can listen to ad-free episodes of The Distraction right now only on Stitcher Premium. And thanks to us, you can get free month of Stitcher Premium, too. Just go to stitcherpremium.com and use the promo code DISTRACT. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever it is that you listen. And subscribe to Defector.com, too, while you're at it. And go read Jason Zengerly at The New York Times Magazine. Because, Jason, this has been a... Really good. This has been a fantastic podcast. I feel... More educated. I feel also, frankly, more naive than I did uh, about 45 minutes ago. <laughs> and honestly, goal. it's something that I, I, I required. And I, I really do. I had no idea you could endow a position on a basketball. It's true. It's true. So uh, this has been fantastic. We, we come back Roth, on again. Rutgers big man. Uh, That's right, yes. <laughs> Clifford Amori. It's my honor to sponsor you. And thank <laughs> you so much, Jason. We, we appreciate it. And, uh, and we hope to have you on again sometime. Thanks, guys. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye.